Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, joined by co-host Aaron Keller. We're on Zoom today with several of our wildlife diversity biologists from across the state. We have Mackenzie Jeffress from our eastern region and Michael West, for the very first time, from our Tonopah office. How are you guys? Thank you so much for joining. Good. Thank you for having us. Yes, Uh, thank you. Of course. Yeah. Like I said, it's Michael's first time. And then Mackenzie, we had you not long ago. Time flies talking about pica. Yeah. And today we thought it'd be fun to talk about bats because it's bat week, an annual celebration, just recognizing bats. And um, we're going to get into the awesome bat work that you guys do. So do you want to kick it off? Um, Mackenzie, maybe I'll throw it to you and tell us a little bit about the acoustic work you were telling me about. Yeah, so um, in our program, the Wildlife Diversity Program, we do a lot of different types of bat surveys. Um, But one of the newer efforts that we are doing is um, participating in a program called NABAT, and it stands for North American Bat Monitoring Program. And in doing this, we've started doing acoustic work statewide. And so that means we put out these specialized detectors that record the bats flying by because those bats at night are echolocating and they have distinct calls that help us identify species like we can actually like go okay well that's a you know a big Townsend's big eared bat or whatever flying by um and then that uh, allows us to determine where the species are across the state that's crazy so just from hearing their calls you can identify which type of bat it is yeah, some easier than others. And I used a pretty poor example because Townsend's big-eared bats are about the hardest one to detect with the acoustics. Uh, but yes, for the most part, um, it, you know, uh, specialized software and a trained eye can look at those files afterwards and identify two species. So for people who don't know, um, without this software, we can't just regular people outside enjoying nature, we can't actually hear bats calling, right? For the most part, although spotted bats are a really cool one that you can hear them um, flying by, it kind of sounds almost like a cricket or an insect, but it'll be over your head and moving across. And um, so where there's spotted bats, you can hear those. Okay. And Mackenzie, you said this is statewide? Actually, yeah, for our participation, it's statewide, but it's actually a continent-wide effort, um, which is really cool because we're such a small program when we try to do, you know, surveys standalone, we're just doing our own thing. We often can't get a big enough data set to do anything really exciting with the data. Well, here we're contributing um, data to for Nevada. There's others doing these work, this work in the state as well, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, Park Service, BLM. And then it's occurring in many states. Um, Actually, I think every state has coverage as well as Canada and Mexico. And so it allows all of us to contribute data to a centralized place. And then these really smart people at the headquarters are analyzing all that data and telling us how each species is doing and where they occur. 
That is really cool. So how how do you guys divvy it up? Like which locations are you at? Um, Mackenzie, I take it you're doing surveys more in Eastern and Michael, are you doing surveys throughout Tonopah or Southern region or how do you guys divide that up? So I cover kind of the South Central part of the state here. Um, the entire North American continent is divided up into a series of grids and they're prioritized based on some kind of um, sophisticated statistics and science. So we get a distribution uh, sample across the entire continent, across different habitats, uh, different land managing agencies and things like that. So we have a really good representative sample across the entire country. Currently, Endow, McKenzie, myself, and our counterparts are prioritizing the highest priority sites uh, cells in our respective areas. I'm covering five sites here in central Nevada. I'm not sure how many McKenzie is covering in Elko, but in all of our offices with diversity biologists, all have picked up at least three sites across the state. Okay. And Mackenzie, how many sites are you at then? I was able to cover three the last couple of years um, and helping some of the other biologists get their sites figured out. Um, and so altogether, our program, you know, within Endow, uh, we've surveyed at least 21 sites across the state last year and this last summer as well. Okay, so your bat work, it's wrapped up for the year then. Yeah, we try to do these surveys following these set protocols that they've developed and for the stationary acoustic surveys are what they're called. Um, we do them early summer, so it kind of depends on where you're at. We're trying to get at when um, the time period before the young are flying around. And so like Southern Nevada, those are kind of more May timeframes. Um, and so we do those and we put out the detectors for the goal is four nights um, and at least two detectors per site for four nights. Did you guys have any interesting findings, anything you learned this year specifically? Well, for this year, we're still waiting for those results. Um, it's all on a hard drive right now, getting ready to go to the specialist for analysis. But I will say for my area, I was super excited to detect um, spotted bats along the Jarbage River area. Um, they're just a, a species we often don't detect. Um, and it's really exciting when you do. They're really beautiful. We don't know a lot about them. How about you, Michael? I would just emphasize the spotted bats and this acoustic monitoring. It's kind of like putting out trail cameras for uh, hunters, but it records ultra high sonic, high uh, frequency sound. And it really allows us to cover a lot more area. We've detected a lot of spotted bats. They're solitary, hard to find, but this acoustic work's really helping us fill in the map of where they occur in the state. So that's one of the big exciting things. Um, and like Mackenzie said, they're, they're pretty incredible, very beautiful, very charismatic bats um, and hard to find. I've only seen one in my entire career. So it's quite exciting. Yeah, and I'll just add too that um, even though we just are getting started and it takes several years to get trend data to understand like how the populations are doing over time, these surveys have been going on starting around 2015. And so some people are ahead of us and it's been really neat to see the results from those analyses to see like how certain species are doing over time kind of more range wide. 
So I'm really excited to see where we're going to be um, for some of these bat species we really haven't been able to dive into, you know, how the populations are doing in a few years, I think we'll have a better handle on that. Yeah, so this is completely new information for you guys too. That's pretty cool to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, um, so these sites, like I know biologists love having their equipment and their things they use, like and we talk to all the different biologists, but what goes into like a site? Like Michael, I like how you said, like, it's kind of like a trail camera, but like, are they, is this thing like expensive or, you know, are we going to get more of them or how do you pick the sites or maybe we can get into that just real quick. So there's a couple of different companies that make these acoustic detectors. Um, some very, very sophisticated, several thousand dollars. Some uh, you can even buy off like Amazon and hook up to your tablet or your iPhone. Um, those are not quite research grade, but they are great um, for the amateur who wants to learn about bats and experience it directly. The ones we use are um, upper level or I don't remember the exact cost, but $800 or $1,000, somewhere around there, I think. Uh, they're just a small little plastic box with a bunch of electronics inside. You glance at one, you think it's a, a trail camera. They look very much like a trail camera, except they have a long cord going up to a microphone that we um, put on a painter pole that extends up about four or five meters off the ground. Um, that uh, reduces some of the echo and static and other things that gets us a nice clean uh, sound recording uh, for analysis. No. And yes, we would like to buy more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long do you guys leave them out for? If you already, if you guys go out and set up the poll, how long? Yeah, you... for about uh, the goal is four nights, although sometimes longer. And the hope is is that even though kind of the NA bat protocol, they want it in a narrow time frame. Um, we do those kind of early summer. The hope is that maybe we'll start doing some of this stuff outside of that summer period, maybe even long-term deployments, see what bats are doing in the fall. Um, you know, if you did year-round deployments, there's actually some bat activity in the winter time that'd be neat to understand a little bit better. So I think it, having these detectors in our hands now opens a lot of doors for us. Yeah, but you guys' wheels are turning as far as like now where you could use them or move them around or outside of the window. Oh yeah, we have a lot of ideas. We just need the money and the people. <laughs> is this something that volunteers can go out on or is it more biologists for, I know you said right now it's only you're done, but for next year or if you guys do expand. That is the next kind of project we're looking at is maybe trying to get some of these sites established and then yeah, a little training. And I definitely think volunteers could um, put out these detectors. I mean, you can program them from the office and then it's really just turning it on and taking a little bit of information about the site you put it at. And, um, you know, we could even scout those sites out ahead of time and put a T-post in the ground and it's like, this is the exact spot. And then somebody goes and retrieves them. And so it's a great volunteer opportunity, I think. Okay, little plug for our volunteer opportunities and head to endout.org and you can see all of our opportunities there and sign up to get notified. So if this does end up being something you'll be alerted because that sounds pretty cool. I'm interested in seeing how it all works. And also my other question, just being a con ed person and the person that manages our social media, can you guys share the files of the sound? Would that be something we could post for the public? Yeah, I think we could get a spotted bat call and, you know, post that for sure. And then um, the software does take those calls that you typically wouldn't be able to hear in, you know, real world. 
um, you can actually, it, it does some fancy thing where you can make it so you can hear it and you can hear them kind of like moving through the environment. It's like click, click, click. And then, oh, they found an insect and it goes click, 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 click. And they're getting, they're zooming in on it. And so it's kind of neat to hear those things. Yeah, I know. I want to hear that so bad. So people keep an eye on our Facebook. Maybe I'll get that from <laughs> Mackenzie and Michael and <laughs> post it for everyone. Well, that does it for the first half of our show. We're already through first half, but we will be right back after this quick break. You're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today we are talking with our wildlife diversity biologists. We have Michael West from Tonopah. We have Mackenzie Jeffress who's located in Elko, and we're talking about their bat work, specifically the acoustic bat work. And um, you two were talking about the different sites where we put equipment and we're monitoring. Um, how do we pick those sites? Because we really wanted to explain that it's not, you're not just randomly putting equipment out there. Um, who Michael, I'll let, I'll let okay. you take that one if you want. Okay. Um. <laughs> So one of my grids, one of the sites that I'm sampling has a variety of different habitats. And just like big game and things, you know, that we are more familiar with, bats have different habitat preferences as well. So the grid that I have, one of them has three different sampling locations within it. One of those is at a spring development with water because bats do need to drink water in this very arid desert environment. Uh, one of the other sites is an aspen stand, which tends to pick up species that roost in the foliage of the trees and things of that sort. Not every bat lives in a cave. And then my third site is an open sagebrush meadow that has a lot of bats of different species that are foraging and it's surrounded by pinyon juniper habitats. So covered three different habitats, uh, meeting different life history requirements for different species of bats as a way of garnering information about a whole variety or full complement of bat species here in central Nevada. Okay, and with the different, the diverse types of habitat we have in Nevada, does that give us a di more diverse group of bats in Nevada than other states might have, would you say? Sorry to throw that in there, but that is super interesting <laughs> to think we do have such different types of habitat. Like Michael, you just listed a number of them. Does that give us more bat species than other states might have? I, I definitely think so. I mean, um, we have 23 bat species that have been documented in Nevada. And I imagine the further north we go, that number gets smaller, like you get up into Idaho and, and stuff. I, I think they maybe don't have as many bat species. So especially because we also have the Great Basin and then the Mojave ecotype, you get some really, really cool bat species as you get towards the Mojave and Las Vegas area, yellow bats and long-tongued bats and things like that. Alan's big-eared bats that, um, yeah, I've never seen, so. <laughs> I know, I feel like I could just geek out on bats and I just want to hear all about them every time we have someone on here talking about them. So sorry, I just- <laughs> like in, uh, 
it's like a recurring thing with with diversity species it's like there's so much to learn that we're like the tip of the iceberg every time we have diversity stuff like Mackenzie and Michael on it's like they're learning so much so fast yeah. here they've always been here for you know but the information and the documenting is, is very interesting as far as like how much work you could do yeah, absolutely. And what's really cool in, in this realm, the bat acoustics world, is it is evolving very fast with the technology. And it is amazing where we are. Like, I mean, 10 years ago, we were just getting kind of the older type of equipment that kind of didn't detect, you know, the calls or record the calls and the, the quality we can get now. Um, it's amazing how far it's come. The software and everything else, it's going to be, I can't imagine where we're going to be in another 10 years. I feel like that could almost be a podcast in itself, like technology's impact on wildlife work and conservation work. Yeah, about four, maybe four or five years ago, we got one of, or we used one of those ones that you plug into your phone and, it, and we were at, um, we were down on the East Walker and we took one outside and we measured, you know, we basically were, we were saying like, oh, this is that bat and this is, you know, these other touch bats. And I was like, there's no way. <laughs> mind-blowing to me and they're like oh yeah that's what they are you can tell yeah. yep yep um, pretty interesting that is and then so technology is coming a long way but you guys also couldn't do this without partnerships so i definitely wanted to mention all the yeah, different partners yeah. involved in this work exactly i mean we couldn't do this without the contract assistance from we work with a bat conservation international on that um they're, you know, in the state of Nevada, over 40 cells, um, like Michael mentioned earlier, these are kind of broken up into cells. So basically 40 sites were surveyed last year and Endow contributed, you know, somewhere around 20, 25 of those. But really like, I mean, Fish and Wildlife Service, Park Service, BLM, Forest Service, tribal um, representatives, you know, a lot of different agencies, groups, organizations are doing these surveys and it really helps us get to a place where you can analyze the data and have really strong, you know, rigorous um, statistics behind like, are the bats in decline? Which species, which ones are doing good? That sort of thing. As you can say, the partnership's very critical. And Mackenzie and I spend a lot of time with our local uh, BLM Forest Service counterparts, helping them you know, learn this technology, learn the protocols. And um, part of why I've done so many sites is helping cover Forest Service during a vacancy when they were between biologists. And that collaboration with our partners is very, very critical. It helps us in so many ways to share information and whatnot. Yep, that was, that was exactly my question, was how important is it to have buy-in from like land management agencies and, and the other partners to to keep this work kind of going on and on and on like you know we're not going to live forever but hopefully this this work keeps going we learn more information so yeah. um how important is it like in a spot where you're at michael to like branch out like from your office i mean you can go in every different direction how do you how did you pick like your sites or were they already did you already have stuff in mind so the the nationwide program prioritizes you know these are the top five percent of the sites um, to ensure that spatial distribution. So I just started at the list, um, 
my in my area my number one priority top site happens to be on Department of Defense. It's on uh, NELA's test and training range. Um, so I didn't have access to that, but they are another partner we work with and they are covering some of those sites on the range. After that, I just started working down the list and I have sites that are right adjacent to town here. It takes me an hour to go set my detectors and then I have others that are way over in the Hot Creek range and it's all day and I'm out on the ATV and I cover about 40 miles on the ATV on rough crappy roads to um, get everything deployed. And then I go back a week later and pull everything. So um, those are good days out in the field. I was gonna say I'm a little jealous. <laughs> I wanna be out in the Tonopah office. <laughs> Uh, well, is there anything else you want to say about our the bat work you guys are doing, um, the acoustic work specifically, before we move on? Because I do want to get into some other bat fun before we wrap up the podcast. Only that I, um, you know, our hope is to do this long term. This is, you know, that's where you get um, a really good understanding of what's going on with populations over time is to commit to it year after year. And then we're looking at doing what's next is maybe some mobile transects so you can put these detectors on top of your vehicle and drive down a road at a set speed and uh, detect bats that way. So that's maybe the next thing that we'll try to tackle. You have to keep us in the loop. Oh, go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, this acoustic work is just one part of our overall bat uh, monitoring program for the state. So, you know, we do winter surveys and we do do some catching of mist netting of bats and things as well. But dollar for dollar, this acoustic work is very, very cost effective for us, allows us to cover a lot of ground. And that's very exciting to um get this much data and this much information for relatively low cost. And that's yeah. a that's exciting. That's that's highly valuable. I'm excited to see where it goes. And you guys have to send us pictures so we can <laughs> highlight it because I think this is something that's going to interest a lot of people. And maybe we'll get you back on another podcast too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like I said, it is Bat Week. By the way, spoiler alert, we're pre-recording this about a month ahead of time. So wait till you see what comes out on our Facebook. Um, if you haven't already, check out our Facebook for bat content, because as we're recording this, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but it's going to be good. But anyway, since it is bat week, we love to do some myth busting around bats, um, because bats have a bad rap. <laughs> so um, what is, Mackenzie, we could start with you, because I know you were thinking hard on it. What is one of your favorite fun facts about bats that people might not know? Well, you always hear that bats are blind and uh, that is not true. Um, and so, yeah, they they can see very well. Um, and we can attest to that when we're trying to trap them using mist nets and we put them up and if it's still too light out or the moon's out, they see the net and fly right over it. Um, but, you know, because they move around at night, that's why they often, you know, they're doing, you know, echolocation um, and using that to navigate as well, but they can see very well. Um, and actually there's not in North America, but some of the bats in other countries, you know, don't even really echolocate and rely on eyesight primarily for navigating around like the fruit bats and things like that. So that's my cool little fact. That is a good one. Yeah. I don't know where that came about. The bats are blind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Michael, what about you? So, you know, we all know about 
the bat cave and bats hibernate underground and everything, but we actually have species that are migratory and they don't hibernate and they actually migrate south just like birds do in the in the winter and the fall. And you know, it's easy to think bats, oh, they just hibernate underground in a cave and that's what they do. But a lot of different species, they all have different life histories. Some migrate, um, some hibernate here in, in Nevada, some go to Mexico, um, and then they come back in the spring. So they're they're pretty diverse. They're they're more more variability there than you might think of it at times. Not every bat's the same. That is really interesting. And I thought about that, Mackenzie, when you mentioned that they, they are pretty active in the winter, actually. So yeah, they can actually come out during warm spells and, and fly around and stuff too. And, you know, one extra little fact I'll add is that some bats are, I mean, they're really cool looking. Like, I think people are always like grossed out and think they're ugly. And, you know, I encourage you to Google a hoary bat or a spotted bat and they are beautiful. They are so cool looking. And so, um, you know, I, I think they're really awesome. And I think they get too bad of a rap sometimes. They really do. And as a fellow, a fellow pika lover, um, I think pika are the cutest. Bats are up there. There are some really cute bats out there. So they're not all scary. No. Well, thank you both so much. I feel like we only really scratch the surface when we have diversity biologists on. So um, there's so much more we could get into. So we'll have to have you back on here. But thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thank you. Of course. And thank you everyone for listening. That does it for this week's Nevada Wild. Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife. <laughs> <laughs>